0: Hello church, my name is David and we will now be reading today's passage from Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 to 20. Please follow along in your own Bible or on this screen. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest before, uh, become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a reading of God's word.
1: Uh, well, good morning again to you, True North. Uh, my name is Eugene. I'm a member here, of the pastoral staff. I have the privilege of giving today's word i need to excuse my voice um i was at a live sporting event this past week you can probably guess which one i kind of let myself go so i apologize if my voice cracks it cracked a couple times the teacher service but just uh just stick with it. i'm not trying to like lower my voice or anything okay um to give you guys a preview of the pulpit uh we'll be entering into a, a new sermon series next week for the next couple months about worship, um, about what that would look like, about what it looks like for us here at True North, and even personally in our lives. But today, just kind of as a a one-off before we get into that, um, I really wanted to take a look into this text. And there's so many things that I'm not going to be able to get into, um, but to look at the idea of what it means to hope uh, in God as in a non-cheesy way. In 2017, uh, it was the year I moved to the Bay Area to become a a member of our pastoral staff here at our church. I'm a Bay Area native. I grew up here in the East Bay, uh, Fremont and Pleasanton. So I was gone for 10 years. And coming back, it was a wildly different place even compared to now. Um, It was a place probably uh, one of the most hopeful, objectively, regions in the world. I would visit Facebook every week back then. It was Facebook. I would eat the barbecue, and like the vibe was just very different um, when I was there. Uh, 2017, 2018. It seemed like tech was gonna take over the world. It seemed like salaries would always go up. And now, in 2023, after a pandemic, after layoff, after layoff, and you know, we just spoke as we just had our pre-service prayer. The anxiety is much different. We are not no longer the most hopeful region in the world. We might be one of the most anxious regions in the world and I thought to myself if Jesus was able to physically be present to our church at this moment what would be the word he would impart with us to give us encouragement and I think it's here in the text that he would call us to to be this disciples of Jesus we are called to be hopeful people that that should be our dominant characteristic and even forgetting um you know the job market and the finances of the time Especially within our church, uh, I think Jay and I have noticed that we are going through a a time of loss. Uh, Several members losing close loved ones, um, unexpected things happening, and even moving that aside, even just the, I guess, the grind of life. There are small things that always start to pile up, that a a manager is a little too overbearing, um, that your kids are just not reacting in a way that's respectful or just calm at home and these small things add up and all of us are seeking hope because so much of life feels like it's swimming upstream and in verse 18 one thing that the author tells us he, he switches where for a while he's talking about Abraham and we'll get into that but all of a sudden in the middle of verse 18 the author changes and tells us this he, he describes who we are as people we who have fled for refuge And and i believe that's such a great uh description of humanity people fleeing for refuge we are a people constantly seeking and also at the very same time skeptical of hope because the problem is whatever we put our hope in in this world if you know deep down inside if you're like me you know it not it's not gonna last like even to me right the the legal concept of marriage shows us both our desperate need and also our skepticism of hope because what are you saying when you legally get married think about this when you legally get married you finally say oh my goodness i have found someone that i can put all of my hope in but i am so skeptical of you that you need to sign this contract that if you leave me i get half of your money that's what legally marriage is right why do we have that institution as a society because we are people desperately needing hope and skeptical of hope. And if you're like me, you, you're like a cynic by nature. And whenever the idea of hope comes up, you kind of cringe. Or it's like, oh, that's, that's Disney stuff, right? Like we, we don't live in, in Disney. We live in A24. We live in a very broken, messed up world, right? And you get skeptical of hope. But Hebrews points us to find our hope not in something in this world, but something as the author puts behind the curtain of reality, that to be a disciple is to hope in, to anchor into Christ. So before we get into what hoping in God looks like, I wanna be very clear, well, what does it not look like? What does hoping in God not look like? You know, in an anxious age, I think all of us respond in very different ways and I would sum it up in two main ways. That some of us are blindly optimistic about life. Others of us are dreadfully cynical about life. Uh, I'm, I'm in the latter. But really quick, for those that are optimistic, and, and especially those who, you know, as I talk about hope, and if you grew up in the church, you, you, you might cringe right now, right? Where it's like, oh, it's, this is like the, the Jesus take the wheel stuff, everything's going to be okay. That, that's, that's not what hope is. Right, and I want to be very clear, optimism, uh, optimism is not hope. Hope is not optimism. It's not blind trust that everything will turn out okay. Arthur Brooks, who's, a, who's an author in the Atlantic, he puts it this way, and I, and I find it to be very helpful. In an in article I think entitled, Hope is so much better than optimism. Optimism is a naive belief that things will somehow turn out all right. Hope makes no such assumption but is a conviction that one can act to make things better in some way. Do you note the difference? And you know, there's some things I would parse out a little bit differently for this message, but I, I agree with the sentiment. Hope is not blind optimism that all of a sudden because you place your trust in God, everything in your life is going to turn out okay. Because if you live life for more than 20 years, you'll realize, or maybe more than 10, you realize that is not true. No matter how strong your faith is, the world comes crashing at you like a wave. And for look, for many of us in the Christian faith, oftentimes we confuse hope with optimism. And I think the author and I think even Jesus would say, that is not the case. I have a friend uh, who I grew up with and I'll keep it anonymous. They're not in this room, I don't think so. Um, but they, I'll keep it even very anonymous. They, you know, he or she, uh, would drive driving around a lot. and. They were also very anxious when they were driving, very anxious to a point where I felt like I could die at any second. And I remember they were driving on the freeway and it was a lot of traffic, right? And uh, she, they had to, like, lane change, um, I promise you there's no one here, but they had to lane change and she all of a sudden closed her eyes and just turned, right? And we, somehow, by God's grace, we lane changed. And I looked at her and I said, what the? are you doing, right? I was a little, a little heated. And she's like, oh, don't worry. I'm a hopeful person, right? i was like, no, that's, that's, that's idiotic optimism, right? That is not hope, right? And so f- for so many of us, uh, we confuse the Christian faith like that. That we think, oh, if we believe in God, I'm just going to close my eyes and God's going to make sure everything is okay. That is not what the author is saying here. Optimism is more selfishly concerned with changing your life circumstances. Hope in God is acting in trust in any circumstance that comes your way. It's two very different things. And we have to make sure we parse that out. But secondly, some of, I would say this, most of us are not optimists. You don't come to Silicon Valley if you're an optimist. Most of us, if you're like me, you're a deep cynic down in your soul. That living in an anxious world, especially in an anxious age, the way that you choose to respond is not with optimism because you look at that and you're like, that is is not real, that's Disney stuff. I'm living in a much different world. And your response is you choose to see the negative in every single opportunity, arena, and chance in your life. And, you know, my wife always tells me this because I'm a cynic by nature. Like, if you're around cynics, it's, it's so tiring, right? Because they play devil's advocate. You're like, oh, man, I got a job. And they're like, oh, you, hey, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of layoffs going on, right? Like, oh, man, like, I just got married. It's like, oh, divorce rates are really high, right? It's like, it's like whoa, whoa, like, what are you doing? Now I'll say this, most of us deep down inside, if you've lived life long enough, especially if you get kids, you become cynical. That's just the nature of life. But you have to realize this, to be a disciple of Jesus and to be a cynic is not compatible. It does not make sense. Jesus was the furthest thing from a cynic, although he had every right to be cynical about life. And the more you think about it, I, when we, we're going to take a look, a deeper look at what hope looks like, but the reason... So many of us are cynical. And this is more out of self-observation and thinking. Cynicism is ultimately defense against pain. I'm gonna disappoint myself before the world or anyone else can do it. And I would tell you this, behind every cynic is a hopeful boy or a hopeful girl that at one time their hopes were crushed by someone or something. The cure for cynicism is not to see the world burn, but we need hope We need a hope that will not let us down. And when we start looking at Jesus' life, as the author is about to aim us towards, you see a man who is a man, a human being, who had to deal with everything that we are dealing with in the 33 years of his life, probably even more. And look, he had every right to be cynical. He had every right at the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's going to the cross in a cynical way, be like, God, I told you, Father, I told you told you this is what's going to happen. Take me out of here. Peace out. He could have said that. But he doesn't. He's a man of celebration even in the midst of pain. He's a man of rejoicing even in the midst of suffering. And what Hebrews is pointing us to is that is what our hope should look like. Then the question is this, what does it then look like to hope in God as disciples of Jesus? And I want to I camp here as long as we can and really draw out this analogy. I love verse 19. Uh, and 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 the reason I picked it is because I always liked it because it sounded cool, but the more you thought about it and the more I researched and prayed about it, there's so much practical truth to this analogy. Verse 19, this is what the author tells us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What he's talking about is Jesus. What does it look like? Uh, to be a hopeful person it's not to be a naive optimist it's not to be a cynic it's to be someone anchored into christ not to get lost in the currents and winds of life you know i love this analogy of of being our hope being an anchor because i'm going to draw this out a little bit more but just think about it. even i know for many of us in america we it's very rare to go on a boat that even needs an anchor but back then an anchor was crucial to get around because there's a thing If you're on a boat, and you might might know this if you've been on a boat, uh, even though it feels like you're staying put, if you don't have an anchor down, the currents and winds are moving you in direction whether you know it or not. And that is such a good description of life. Life is an ocean with waves that can crash down on you. Life is an ocean that's always pulling you in one direction or the other, even if you think you're stagnant. And what hoping in God looks like is dropping an anchor. Amidst all that's going on and finding security in Christ. Anchoring ourselves. That's what hope looks like. It's not optimism. It's anchoring yourself in Christ. Now what does that practically look like for us? There's, three, there's kind of three analogies from the anchor that I want us to really uh, meditate and, and think upon. Um, the first is this. If, if we are called to be anchored onto Christ, that means that we're called to have hope in an external savior. Uh, if we're called to be anchored into Christ, onto Christ, we're called to have an external savior. What does that mean? Um, an anchor. Let's let's just get a little bit more spatial about this. If you think about an anchor, the anchor goes to a place that the boat cannot go to. The boat is floating on water, and it what it needs is stability. And the only way to get stability is to cast something outside of itself—an anchor—to go deep down into the seabed floor and find security among the rocks, among the immovable parts of the seabed floor. And all of a sudden, as you drop that anchor and the chain is connected, that security of the floor is now transferred onto the boat. Are you guys staying with me here? What that means for us is this, our hope must look like finding something outside of ourselves. Those who can have true hope must place it in something greater than themselves. Think about this, an anchor is not part of the boat. It's something that gets cast outside of the boat. And for many of us, you could be like this, look, my sails look great. I have a great captain. The wood is great. I have a great crew. All of that does not matter. You can have the finest ship of the time. Even nowadays, you can have the best ship made out of the best materials with the best captains, the best achievements, whatever you want to put on the boat. But the only way you're going to find security is finding something to cast outside of it. And for so many of us, it's a difficult thing to do because many of us place our hope, even though we cringe at the idea of hope, we still place our hope in things that we can control or achieve. You know, if you've been at True North long enough, you'll, you'll have heard this, right? We put our hope in things in the material world, whether it's finances, real estate, vocation, family. And what we do is we bank that during the storms of life, those things will hold us down, but anything. That we place hope in this life, in the boat called life, inside of it, it's not strong enough. I'm a cynic. I love being a cynic. If you are a cynic, and the first step to recovery, read Ecclesiastes, because it's a very cynical but redemptive view of the world. If you know me, I, I it's one of I darkly read it like once a month. In Ecclesiastes one fourteen, this is what it writes in NIV: "I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them." Are meaningless a chasing after the wind when you put your hope on things inside of the boat called life and not on anything external it's always fleeting it's always going to go away whether it's people whether it's finances i don't know i don't care what it is um i've i've talked you know some of my friends are going to make fun of me there's a great show called beef um you have to watch it it is uh basically ecclesiastes with asian american actors okay and uh, I'm not going to spoil it, although uh, it's been long enough. But there's basically two main storylines of, of two different characters in two very vastly different wealth states and, and situations. One's in a very secure, wealthy state. One's trying to just make it. And the story basically shows how they're trying so hard to find hope in whatever they think they can control on the boat. Whether it's money, whether it's finance, whether it's a position, whatever it is. But the show, as it goes on, what it shows you is the more they try and find hope in those things, the more their life spirals out into chaos. That's so true for us. And this is the thing. All of us seek hope, right? That's to be human. We're, we're trying to find hope in something. Maybe that's why you even came today to our service. Look, we all seek hope in things, but we can never find it that lasts. Right, if you live long enough, you'll know this, right? Jim Carrey has a really famous quote, I wish everyone could get famous so they could realize it does nothing to you. Whatever you think you want, whenever you get it, you want more. What does that show us? C.S. Lewis puts it really well, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And let me rephrase it for this message, if we find ourselves with a desire for hope, that nothing in this world can give the most probable explanation is that we were made for hope from another world something outside of ourselves and what is that uh, it's in christ that we have this just as the anchor finds security on the floor and it's transferred through a chain onto the boat christ gives his life for us and the cross acts as a chain to give us that security on our boat called life regardless of our circumstances regardless of our sight regardless of whether we believe in it or not that security is transferred to us if we put our faith in him the cross is that chain that anchors us to christ and and uh you know i always told myself i'm not gonna do sports analogies but you know one time okay so just bear with me sports fandom is such an interesting thing Uh, On an anthropological level, I think sports fandom shows that human beings are desperate to find hope in something outside of themselves. You know why? I love it. There's always a point when you follow a team, I don't care if it's basketball, baseball, it could be pickleball, I don't know what it is, right? There's always a point where all of a sudden that team and that player no longer is the third person, but all of a sudden the first person, right? Like I talk about the Warriors, like I'm part of the team, like oh, we, we looked good last night, right? Like, oh, we, we got to trade this player. We? Like, I'm not paid. Like, I got to pay myself to get into Chase Center, right? But all of a sudden, all you, you, you know you know this, or maybe you're a fan or you know a fan, all of a sudden they're using first person, why? Because they, they really want to find hope that these players playing on the court or whatever it looks like, a bowl or a stadium, that whatever their achievements do is all of a sudden their security be, or insecurity being cast onto themselves. And sports fandom is, is, is so much more intricate because it shows you, this is how faith works. I'll show you for example, like uh, I'm a huge fan, if you, if you know me, you know this. I'm a huge fan of the Warriors, huge fan of Steph Curry, huge fan. In 2009, his rookie year, I told everyone like this kid is the future. This kid is objectively beautiful and handsome, right? And he can shoot. And everyone made fun of me. And I got really insecure, right? So for a while, when I would watch the Warriors, my cynic side would come up be like, oh, we're going to lose. We're going to lose, right? What am I doing? I'm, I'm hurting myself so that Steph can't hurt me, right? Oh, we're going to lose, right? And it, for a while, like, we were okay and Steph was fun to watch. But in 2015, what's crazy is literally eight years ago, there's a game that changed my life, right? Like, Jesus and then Steph Curry changed my life right after, right? April 23rd, 2015. It's game three, okay? And I'm not going to get too intricate, but I'm going to throw up a picture, okay? Um, I don't know if you can see the picture or not basically Steph Curry is shooting these two guys are about to crash into him. I'm going to objectively ask you, if with no context, do you think he's going to make that shot? Like objectively, do you think he's going to make that shot? Because I'll tell you this, to that point I was like basically that game was really close and Steph had to shoot a three and I was like there's no way that's going in. But the beauty of sports is, is it does not matter what I think or believe, it does not matter what you think or believe, it does not matter what the other team thinks or believes. All that matters is does he make that shot? or not with my belief or disbelief. And in my disbelief, he makes it and he falls to the ground. Now when I see Steph Curry, I have all the hope in the world, right? I'm like, he's gonna make every shot. Why? Because that moment proved to me that he is a sturdy external person I can put my hope in, right? Other teams, like if you have bad players, the Lakers for a while, like you had no hope. Because your players sucked, right? Like, you know, sorry, but you know, it's okay. Now you guys have LeBron, right? Whatever it may be. The reason I'm bringing it up is this. This is such a good picture with how hope and faith works spiritually. It does not matter how much you believe or disbelieve. Tim Keller puts it really well. It's not the strength of the faith that saves you, it's the strength of the object of your faith that will save you. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is this can you put your hope in something outside of yourself? And what Christ shows us on the cross. Is that he is worthy to be putting trust in, he is worthy to be hoping in. Hoping in Christ, anchoring into Christ is hoping in something outside of your achievements, outside of what your strengths are, outside of your net portfolio, outside your real estate, whatever it is. That's what it looks like to anchor yourself into something outside of your boat called life. That's how an anchor works. But secondly this, an anchor, is not just protection from storms, but rather it's a safeguard within them. You know, it's, it's really deep that the author says our hope is like a sure and steadfast anchor. Because I want to make this very clear. An anchor does not shoo away storms. An anchor is there so that you can survive through storms. It's a big difference. That's what hope in God looks like. Hope in God is not, oh, you know what, I hope in God that everything will be okay. No, 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 no. If you live in a broken world, and you've, you've known this, if you live long enough, it will not be okay. But hope is an anchor that saves us within the storms of life. You know, the author talks about Abraham, and he's almost comically summarized, you know, if you're a Hebrew and you read these passages, you're, you're kind of laughing. And I'll give context here. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So to give you context, in Genesis, Adam and Eve happen and they fall. And God's people are lost. And God, in Genesis 12, chooses Abraham, or at that time, Abram and Sarah, to be the new people of God. He goes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a lot of children from your family and you will become the new people that will bless the world under my name. To give some context, Abraham is 70 years old. Sarah is 70 years old. Going on, verse 15, and thus Abraham having patiently waited obtained the promise. Right, if you're a Hebrew reader or Jewish reader and you you see that, you're kind of laughing. Because this is a thing, that that's a very comical summary of what what happened to Abraham. Abraham did not patiently wait; he waited 25 years. Think about this. He's look. I I know infertility is a huge, anxious, and painful, uh, like just condition for a lot of our expectant mothers that want to be here at our church. But just think about this: Abraham, Sarah, at 70 years old, who they want a kid, but they haven't. Infer- in- to be blunt, they have infer- infertility issues. At 70 years old, God says, I'm going to give you children. Abraham at that point is probably like, oh, uh, all right. Like, I don't know if it's going to work, but okay, I trust you. 24 years he waits. At the age of 94, he's still waiting. Saying, Uh, where's my kid, right? It's, I'm like, I'm 94. And in 25 years, finally, God gives Isaac on the 25th year. And also during that time... There's a lot of storms in Abraham's life. He does not respond faithfully. He does a lot of unfaithful things. He tries to produce a child out of his own uh, scheme with a different woman. And all these things happen. He almost puts up Sarah, his wife, uh, to sexual slavery to save himself. A lot of things happen. He's basically going through so many storms, so many mistakes, so many breaches of trust. And yet, God perseveres through the storms. What's happening? Why is the author referencing Abraham? It's in the midst of storms of the storms of life that Abraham intensifies his intimacy and hope and covenant with God. What does it mean to hope in God? It does not mean that your life will automatically become better. Hopeful people, disciples of Jesus, can look into the eyes of the storm and not see, oh man, I hope this passes. But they look into the eye of the storm and what they see is they see God. If you're an optimist, you cannot see God in the eye of a storm. You just want the storm to pass. But hopeful people anchored in Christ look into the storm and they look straight into the eye of the storm. Whatever it is and what they see is an opportunity to get closer and to draw more intimacy with God. And I want to be careful here. Look, I know a lot of people in our church are dealing with things that are much more, they're much more than just elementary problems. Dealing with loss, unexpected loss, all these things. But just bear with me for a little bit. You know, when I read Jonah, and, I, and I've always come across this uh, when you look at Jonah, because Jonah is a person that goes through this storm and he, he doesn't have an anchor, but he finds it in the midst of all of that. And one thing Jonah has taught me is this. You don't know what stitches you together until you're being pulled apart. Like, you don't know what holds you together until you're being pulled apart. I I always talk about this, but... You know, in AP Physics, like you remember building those little bridges out of toothpicks, you know what I'm talking about? And you could build the most beautiful bridge. You can build the most beautiful bridge that looks strong, but you don't know until you place weight on that bridge. What these storms of life do, and what it means to be hopeful in the midst of storms, is to really test, in this storm, what have I been placing my hope in? Because this is the thing, the storms in life give you a very deep, sobering clarity about life. Uh, You know, I've had the chance to even meet with people that are going through storms. And I meet, I'm just trying to give any comfort I can. And more than me giving comfort, I come away with so much wisdom. Because all those people that go through storms, there's just this sobering clarity and wisdom that they get that cuts through all the stuff that we're always concerned about. About our emails, stock portfolio, whatever it is. It cuts through all of that and they find a deep truth. That all that stuff, it does not matter. And I can prove it to you because I'm suffering everything. And that stuff does not hold me together. What hope looks like is this. Anchoring yourself onto God in these storms. Optimists cannot do this. You know, if you think hope is optimism, you look at a storm and you run away. Hopeful people go into this storm. And this is the thing. We have a God who's in the business of saving people in storms. If you look out... If you look to the whole Old Testament, and we even talked about this uh, in our sermon series before this King David, the judges, Abraham, Noah, Moses, all of them, when you look at them, they're going through storms. And in those storms, they're not even faithful to God. They mess up. And yet, in all those stories, God still sticks with them. To find hope in God is to anchor yourself not away from the storms, but in the storms. And when you look to Christ, you see a God you see a man who suffers the greatest storm. The beauty of the cross is this. We have a Savior and God who relates to our pain and suffering. You cannot find that in any other religion or any other God or goddess. We have a God who has suffered for us and knows what it means to suffer. How can we not place our hope in a Savior like that? Hoping in God is anchoring yourself in an external savior. Hoping in God is anchoring yourself in the midst of storms. But finally, and I'll end with this, hoping in God is to dig deep into God. Um, An anchor, uh, if you don't, I didn't know this, but I researched this. But if you look at an anchor, it's kind of, you know, there's like these two little prongs that go outward. Why is that? Uh, Anchors, they don't work by dead weight. You don't just drop an anchor and be like, oh, we're good. And this is the thing, many of us think Christianity is like that. Oh, I believe in God. Everything will be fine. That's not how anchors work. And I think it's very smart what the author did. The way that anchors worked even back then is there's little teeth, whether it's hooks or whatever it is back then, that when you drop the dead weight, you have to shift the boat back and forth over and over and over again for the anchor to dig deep into that seabed floor to catch it. What does that mean for us? We are called to dig deeply into God's presence over and over and over again. And a quick side note, for you to enter into hope, the cynic in you must die. Because if you're like me, even as one of your pastors, it's very, as a cynical person, I look at our spiritual disciplines that we are called to do, right? Pray, read the Bible, meet together, repent our sins. And sometimes if you're like me, you look at them and they're like, eh, right, like I, could, I could do better things. But the cynic has to die for the anchor to dig deep. Because this is the thing, we practice our disciplines, Not to become holier people, not to become better people. Like, we don't read the Bible, we don't pray so that we can become better people. We do that so we can dig ourselves deeper into God's presence. Does that make sense? It's a big difference. The reason we're called to pray is not to just tell things to God. He already knows. He's never surprised. He's not like, oh Lord, like, you know, I watched porn last night. Oh my goodness, how did you? He already knew. The reason you're called to pray that. It's not so that you tell God what happened, but to remind you that God's presence is always with you. Even in the midst of your sinful decisions, even in the midst of the storms of your life, we pray so that our anchor can get dig deeper and deeper and deeper. We read scripture. We're called to do that. Not to become smarter people. Not to become holier people, but to be reminded of God's promises to you over and over and over again. Right? Like what a lot of weddings these days they have videos, and like sometimes the couples will watch it every every year anniversary. Why are you doing that? To be reminded of the vow that you made on that day. The scriptures here, it's not just so that you can become smarter, it's so that you can be reminded that you are called to be a hopeful person because that's what God promises you life in the midst of death. We repent of our sins, not to just simply modify our behavior. But to be able to dig deeper and to remove idols. This is the thing, if you think about repentance, and we practice this every Sunday, the cross tells us that no matter what happens, if you put your faith in them, your past, present and future sins are forgiven, then why are we called to repent? Part of it is this, we're called to repent so that we remove any obstacle of hope in our life. Idols, what they do is they suck out hope. They tell you if you just get enough of me, you'll be happy. But it's all false we meet together weekly like why do we do that Like, why can't we just go on zoom because zoom we talk about this a lot zoom was great right Like, i could be home in my pajamas getting ready for the warriors game right now but we're all here why do we do this why do we meet physically we do it just like an anchor digs deeper that we can encourage each other weekly over and over and over again that communally we're called to dig deeper into god's presence the cynic must die to enter into the hope of joy. I'll close with this, hope is a choice. It's not something that just falls into your lap. It's not just something that like, oh, you know what, I'm a Christian, I have hope. No, it it tells you hope is set before you. And an anchor, what you have to do is you have to physically drop it and dig deep. Let's choose to put our hope in Christ, one outside of ourselves, the one who has weathered all storms, to give us an immovable anchor amidst the waves and the winds of our life, amidst the sins and failures, amidst the storms and heartache, that in all of that we have a savior who anchors us deep into his presence and his security is transferred into our boat called life. Let's pray.